Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. (laughs) And whoever this announcer guy is who's doing Christopher's part. I've been working on my voice. I'm trying not to sound so nasal. I've been doing some deep breathing before we do an episode. Nasal is code for gay. Nasal is code for gay. Listen, I'm gay. I sound gay no matter what I do. I was right. That's That's always the thing that I thought, like... Straight acting, like is cocksucking straight acting now? I'm just not sure how that's going to be straight acting. I, I don't know that that has anything to do with whether or not you're an interior decorator or swishy. I think that has to do with what you do in the sack, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, and your heart. Yes, and your heart. <laughs> I threw you there. I got. I was the emotional one for a change. Yes. No, who you fall in love with? Yes. Absolutely. But even that's, you know, like. You can fall in love with somebody that you're not sexually attracted to, couldn't you? I don't know. This is deep. We're supposed to start with the stupid D.B. Cooper movie we watched. <laughs> well, you know, we can come in out of the, we can come into the shallows uh-huh. from a deeper place, maybe. I think so you had an experience oh, uh, during dear. our last podcast that really sort of took, swept you away, didn't you, Christopher? I did. Like, I talked about would you like this. To share um, that with us. I talked about this some on the last episode, and I promised I was going to do this in this episode, so I'm going to fulfill that promise. I had a, left my text message box open. And so Siri was recording a dictation of our entire episode. It was like a wall of text that was waiting for me on my phone when we were wrapping up. And so I'm going to give you a brief reading of how Siri hears the Christopher and Eric podcast. And here we are with a reading from What Siri Hears by Christopher Rice. This is a voice podcast, and we are a podcast without balls. 
Podcasters Without Cats, are you send $10,000 to buy us lunch, a better lunch, much nicer restaurant. We just had lunch. And sometimes when we do an episode after we've had lunch, things get a little goofy as opposed to the way they usually are dead serious. Our last episode was pretty damn serious. She actually hit her stride around there at the end. But Podcasters Without Balls, let's do another reading. It was okay, that's how we did things then. It was Jenny, but it was also a time when hijacking was a far friendlier endeavor. It was a much more prevalent and kind of almost as jovial kind of, yeah, laughing because they ended it would go to Ken, they would go to Cuba. So, yeah, okay. It goes on and on like that for pages so and pages. that's the pitch for the idea. Next time maybe we'll, we'll come <laughs> up with a way to make that idea work. <laughs> Are funny, you mean? Like yes, the reading? Yeah. I'm thinking. Well, she actually did a better job. I thought it was going to be worse. I saw Podcasters Without Balls and I, I was like, the, let's go. I think the thing is to take something familiar, mm-hmm. like a scene from a movie, like the scene from Mommy Dearest about no more wire hangers, and let Siri dictate the entire scene and then read that scene back. Yes, absolutely. From, from um, And you're going to have to preview some of what she does to see if it's, yeah. it is, in fact, funny <laughs> or it's just what they said in the scene because that won't be as funny. <laughs> well, I have to say, i got to give her more credit. It's like okay. a commercial. Well, we, fortunately, okay. we have well, a fallback position. You're not going to review my joke and we, then shut it down like that. We have a fallback position because one of the things that Christopher did, well, actually, Shea Butters did uh, several weeks ago. What are we talking about? Well, oh, Shea Butters did, a, yes. did a, a, one of, we do a thing called the Question of the Week on her Facebook page. And that's not what it's called. It's called the Wednesday Question. The Wednesday Question on our yes. Facebook page, which if you're not aware of, I'm apparently not. Um, <laughs> so you, don't feel bad. You don't remind Shay to do it every week. I have to get on Shay's case. Okay, so it's between Christopher and Shay and not me. And so right. but the, the question was particularly salient uh, this time because they, they – you want to read the question? Yes. The Drew Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival has taken us all over the U.S. so far. And so – well, I'm, Shay, Shay was drunk when he typed this. And so we figure it's time to ask you the following. What American state scares you the most and why? And you responded. And so we've done a tally. And uh, so we're, gonna, we're now going to reveal to you the winning state of which one from— uh, and it starts with West Virginia, Ohio, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Mississippi, California. Mississippi, Arkansas, and Alabama were one response. Somebody said all three of those equally. I'm doing all of the ones that had one response. That's correct, but that's what I'm saying. Mississippi, Arkansas, and Alabama was somebody's total idea of terror across the board. He mentioned all three of them in one comment. So. Also, California, below the Mason-Dixon line, Arizona, Utah, Texas, and the rural and rural America. Yes. All of those are one. So West Virginia, Dayton, and Alabama was all one answer? No. One person said West Virginia. One person said Dayton, Ohio. And one person said Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. Like, I, I am see. one person, and my answer is Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. They're all scary. I see. I was yes. like, why are you correcting me? Yes, so I know, all of those things listening. got one vote. Alaska got two votes. Two votes. But the big winner <laughs> in, a, in a shocking uh, reveal, Florida. Florida is the state you all think would be the most scariest because, like, oh, my God, who is in charge down there? Jesus Christ. Like, they're burning books. Will they start burning authors next? Yes. Like, run, girls. Probably. They'll burn us all. A parents' rights. We have to set you on fire. Um Amy Bellino, let's give her some credit because she is our Florida Florida, cor- Florida correspondent. Her answer said, I know Florida is going to win. 
And she also said she knew the criteria most people were going to use to answer this question, which was cultural, if you will. But she is most afraid of California because of natural disasters Florida. like fires. You know, Amy is most afraid of California, I'm sorry, because of natural disasters like fires. That Has was she been she to Florida? That she lives in Florida. I was going to say, and and the natural disasters in Florida don't give you a moment's That was pause? kind of my response. Like, there's what was a hurricane flow, Ida, Melanie. Buildings falling to the ground Surfside, because of the, yeah, yeah. sinkholes, um, right. a, attacking alligators. This is the thing, though. This is what we learn as Californians, that the national news coverage of our fires makes them sound to people outside the state as if they are happening in the middle of the city of Los Angeles. Because I will get concerned texts. They always roll in around the same time of day. News time in the central time zone. People are like, are you okay? Are you all right? And I'm like, what is going on? And then I'm like, oh, there's that fire out in the Mojave Desert. And the national news is saying Southern California. And they think it's all right at my door. Yeah. This last week... Um well, actually, it'll be a couple of weeks ago now. And if you're watching this five years, listening to this five years in the future, it was a while ago. But there was a thing in the New York Times, because they're qualified to talk about it, about how, you know, California is just coming to pieces mm -hmm. and everybody knows it out here. And we're all right. And I'm like, I always see those things and think, huh, I wonder where that's happening. I'm not yeah. really seeing that. It seemed to be going incredibly well. Um, I went to I went on a trip to San Francisco in April of 2021, which now, in retrospect, seems not too long after the pandemic. But it was after everything in California had opened up again, and we were kind of the last to open some things up. And I was terrified to go because of what people were saying to me about San Francisco, tent cities and Union Square, you know, all these apocalyptic, horrifying stories, and. I walked practically the length of the peninsula several times and never once felt threatened or, or scared. I, there was nobody in Union Square. I walked straight through it, and I just thought, look, San Francisco has always been San Francisco, which is you did not go through the Tenderloin if you didn't have a really good reason to be there. It was a sort of no-go zone for homelessness and, and open-air drug abuse. Okay, and that's still an issue, but, like, the city was not on fire. It wasn't coming to pieces. It didn't, there weren't people dying in the streets. It was just so overblown. There was one uh, study that I said that um, that said that I think by 2060 or something, which I was like, okay, this is really uh, a forecast, um, that the population of Los Angeles will have plunged uh, by a million seven hundred thousand people, and I was like. Just the birth rate between now and 2060 will have compensated for that, just, like, yeah. 10 or 15 times. What are you even talking about? Like, have you even considered people just love to come after us? And the, the thing that they don't do is ever report on anything that's not a wildfire here. Yes. Like, they won't report on our weather. No. No matter what it is, good weather, bad weather, unless there is a fire. Right. And we have weather events here, but nobody really talks about it. No. And then the state's going to be swept away in this flood when the snow melts from all the rain this year. I haven't noticed any floods of you, and no, it's pretty hot out there. Floods. So I think that that's um, probably not going to happen. Uh, this has always been the thing. You're correct, to attack California. Because I think it is it is our ambitions that they are attacking or the, their sense that we believe we are better than the rest of the country, when the fact is we're just taking advantage of some climactic advantages here that we enjoy. People who don't want to deal with winter anymore move to California. They move to Southern California or in particular. Or Florida, right. I, so, I, Amy, I would say don't believe everything you read about California that's being written by somebody who wants to move to Texas and not pay any um, income tax. 
which I would like to point out means that you will pay five times as much property tax yes. because they still have to have tax money. They're just not taxing rich people with higher incomes. That's correct. And I am a property property owner in the state of Texas, and I can testify. But that rich that people is own more property, so it probably pays. Maybe out. so. Maybe so. Um, okay. I feel like I had one more California thing to say, but it went out of my head. And I maybe we can come back to it because. Okay, I'm going to put a question to you, Eric Shawquin. Is this the worst movie we've ever watched as a true crime movie time? This is just such a bad movie that it's hard to really even connect it with being part of true crime mm -hmm. movie time. This is it's so childish. This is jejun. This is like... Tell us what jejun means. It means youthful. Youthful. Um, In French, right? Yes, I Greek, guess so. Or Latin. Latin or something. I don't know. But <laughs> um, but I, I assume French. Um, Sanskrit. Yes, not Sanskrit. Um, like the, the Hillside Strangler movie was, on balance, a more terrible movie. Mm -hmm. But this was so cannonball run. This was so... This was just so stupid mm -hmm. that it was maybe even more insufferable than, I mean, at least the Hillside Strangler was, you know, nominally about the Hillside Strangler. Right. yeah. Like, there was actually a crime and there were actually suspects and they actually got busted and they were the suspects that did the crime and got busted. Mm -hmm. So, all right. You know, it wasn't, it was so, it was really poorly done and it was really a bad shoddy movie and... Like invented characters that didn't exist. Oh, in, none in of it. I mean, it was all made up. Okay, so let's get into the thinking. But this movie is just—I don't even know what you're talking about. Let me let me present the thinking to our party people that I presented to you, right? Which is this is our final installment in the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. We've gone all around the country. We've done two true crime pairings in each region of the United States. This was the end of Pacific Northwest Nightmares, but we were a little nightmared out. Yeah. So we thought, well, we'll pick a true crime story that's kind of bloodless, if you will, and that is the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, which right. happened in the air over— And so uh, if D.B. hit the ground yeah. going 100 miles an hour, so there might have been some blood, but that would have been it, and you didn't really know it for sure, and— you know, it was kind of on DB, so you couldn't really blame anybody else. So we did our documentary last week, uh, which we enjoyed, but it, it presented up a bevy of potential suspects for nobody caught DB Cooper. Nobody ever really recovered all of the money. They recovered. They found part of the money on a beach on the Columbia River, 45 miles south of where he was supposed to have a landed. A fraction of the money. A very small fraction. Teeny tiny. Water damaged to the hilt, but um, serial numbers that matched the ransom money. Okay, so that documentary offered up a host of potential suspects. That documentary was recent, and I knew this movie was from 1981, but this movie looked like it had Robert Duvall and Treat Williams, and I was like, why have I never heard of this movie? And the answer is because it was terrible. It really was. It was like, what if Sally Field and Burt Reynolds were D.B. Cooper? Yes. It's really, it's it's in keeping with that that sort of, on the road buddy movie adventure thing, boy girl buddy movie adventure thing that that was popular during the time period. And so they've tried to adapt the thing that I really found almost unimaginable was what must the novel have been like? Here's the thing. We were I went to the Wikipedia page because I thought, okay, this is the first time I am really not liking an older movie in a while for this series. 
that other people seem to have either ignored or not liked. I think this movie has a 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, nobody liked this movie. It was a total bomb. It had, But it's Treat Williams and Robert Duvall, and it's not, you know... Who were beating the shit out of each other during the production, allegedly. So this is... I did a deep dive on what happened with this movie, and I honestly thought you and I could do a podcast called Bombs, where we just do an analysis of movies that have just bombed. Because some movies bomb because they're terrible, some movies bomb because the market's not with them, and it's not fair, they don't get marketing, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, okay... Um, I'm going to go to the Wikipedia page. So Jeffrey Allen Fiskin wrote the original script. Robert Mulligan was the initial director, but he was allegedly fired because it took him seven days to shoot the Whitewater Rapids chase. And there is a Whitewater Rapids chase in the movie. (laughs) We use the the term chase advisedly. Director John Frankenheimer also worked on the film, but he was replaced by Buzz Kulik after shooting one sequence and Kulik finished the film. A writer named W.D. Richter worked on the script but got no credit. The producers then asked editor-slash-director Roger Spottiswood to shoot a major new stunt and edit the film, but Spottiswood told them that the film was, quote, doomed unless he could shoot new sequences to be written by Ron Shelton, who went on to make Bull Durham in later years, and I've got something from an interview with Shelton about this movie. So... Shelton would be credited as an associate producer, and the Spottiswood Shelton scenes would end up comprising approximately 70% of the finished film. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co host and best friend, Christopher Rice also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So, multiple directors, multiple rewrites, no central vision of what this movie was supposed Almost to be about. Almost a complete reshoot of the entire film. Catherine Harold, who plays the female uh, lead in the movie, says... It was a little tricky knowing what was going to happen without a script. Yeah, I can see how that really would sort of throw <laughs> you off. How do you off. play anything as an actor? The Glenn Kulik, or not Glenn Kulik, I'm sorry, Buzz Kulik, excuse me, film was a, quote, banal, dour Vietnam vet docudrama in which the Treat Williams character, who is the man who we know as D.B. Cooper, concocts the skyjacking scheme to escape post-war malaise and becomes upset when he wins the acclaim as a hijacker that has eluded him as a veteran. The Shelton Spottiswood film, which is what we saw, was more of a chase comedy about a man who returns home and plans to get himself to easy money that's part of the American dream for him and for all the lowlifes he meets along the way, including a nom comrade who returns to haunt Meade like a comic Javert. That's really being generous. <laughs> there were two of them. Yes, two of them. Not just the one. To generate publicity for the film, Universal Pictures offered a million-dollar reward for any information that would lead to the capture and arrest of the real D.B. Cooper, but no one ever claimed the money. 
odd given the heroic portrayal of D.B. Cooper in this movie as this sort of folk hero, charming, charismatic, against the system, get the man down. Troublemaker. So I went a little bit deeper into the interview with Ron Shelton, and that's the writer that director Roger Spottiswood brought in to basically rewrite the whole movie after it was already in production. And Shelton, accepting no blame for this movie, which is included in the interview, says, Joe Silver was just starting out. He went on to be a really big producer in Hollywood. And he was John Peters and Peter Goober's physical production guy at their production company. I can't remember the name of it, he says. They had, they had shot this movie, Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, with Treat Williams and Robert Duvall, and it had gone really badly. They fired Robert Mulligan, a very good director, because he took seven days to shoot a Whitewater Rapids chase, which, by the way, was the only good thing in the movie, and brought in another director who couldn't figure out what to do with it. Meanwhile, Williams and Duvall were getting into fisticuffs. It was a mess. They shut it down and had to try to figure out how to make the movie releasable. They were having punch-ups? They were <laughs> About what? Oh, God, we both have to make this terrible movie. I hate you. Get out of my light. I don't know. <laughs> they were out in that desert. I don't know. So they shut down the production. They have to figure out what to do with this movie. Joel Silver had been partners with Larry, Gold, Larry Gordon on Walter Hill's first movie, Hard Times, and they remembered Roger Spottiswood as a brilliant editor who could fix anything. He had just directed Terror Train, a gorgeous horror movie that he pulled off with no money. Joel went to Roger with the pursuit footage, and Roger said he needed to shoot new scenes to pull everything together. They agreed to pay for a million bucks worth of new material, and Roger said, get Ron Shelton, because he had discovered my script, Antelope Valley. We never got that made, but Roger was trying to help me get off the ground as a writer, and he got me a job doing the rewrites for what became The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. What I did was take the existing footage, and if a character walked through a door, they would end up on the other side in a whole new sequence that I wrote. <laughs> it sounds like everything everywhere all the time. <laughs> I wrote 30 or 40 pages that we shot in a week in Tucson, and then I was there on the set with Roger, who trusted me enough to bring me on under fire as both a writer and a second unit director. Like, okay, and so that's that's the rewrite writer's version of what happened with this movie. But it, it seems like nobody who was producing this movie had any kind of vision of the story they really wanted to tell about D.B. Cooper, so they were totally at the mercy of the directors they brought in, and they didn't seem to like anything the first three directors did. So I, I just, I don't know how you make a movie like that. And, and they liked this? <laughs> well, it's like... When you raise the temperature on a frog in a pot very slowly, they don't notice. <laughs> it's like a, a cinematic I'm sorry. version of that. I just think that Peter Goober Peters were um, were not a frog in a pot. Like they had seen a movie before, <laughs> and they would have the ability to to see a bad movie and go, "I'm not paying to release this piece of shit. Why is yeah. Why isn't this on a shelf somewhere? I mean, it is just. Yeah. I will tell you, this is. I'm going to make a confession here. Uh, can, did you not finish the, the first movie? time that this has ever happened? <gasps> During the course of the whatchamacallit, during sequences like the 
best thing in the movie, um, the whitewater rafting scene. Yeah. I watched in fast forward because there was no dialogue <laughs> and the story didn't advance. There was just shitty music that they had stolen from Raising Arizona. It was yeah, it was yeah. It was like yakety sax might have been <laughs> playing. I just fast forwarded because all you were getting was the shitty music and then these random cut together sequences of you know them in a boat and then yeah. them in a boat over here and then them in a boat getting water in their face and then. There was two or three of those, and I was just like, I'm not sitting through this, Mm -mm. because nothing happened until the end of those sequences, and I hated the movie so much by that point that it was like, yeah, there's no way I'm going through this kind of crap. It was just ridiculous. It was... It was, I think, very a very derivative movie. It was an effort to take the story of D.B. Cooper and graft it onto, as you said, the, the comedy chase movie, which was very popular genre during the time period. Yeah. Smokey and the Bandit was a huge hit. Cannonball Run, all of those things. Those movies were really goat. Yeah. Those were selling at the box office. Like, I think they should have cast Burt Reynolds and Sally Fields in these parts because they had been making these movies, and yeah. why not them? You know, like, I... Because they had a talent for it, and this was, you know, they needed to get Jackie Gleason to play the um, the Robert Duvall <laughs> part, because that's what was working. And so they just okay. did gonna... it, made a derivative version of those. They just tacked on the DB Cooper story, but this has nothing to do. Right, once again. nothing. And I'm okay. I'm going to give them. The, I'm going to give our party people the story of the movie in like as few sentences as possible. The guy who is D.B. Cooper, the movie opens with him jumping out of the plane. The Robert Duvall is the insurance investigator for the airline who needs to recover the money. It just so happens that Robert Duvall was in the military with the D.B. Cooper character, whose real name is Meade, and realizes only this guy, who he couldn't stand and used to torture in training, could have completed that jump. Uh, so he tracks down the guy's love interest they're, and they sort of miss each other, sort of capture each other. The guy shows up, tells the love interest, you know, I've got all this money now. We're going to go on the run. They go on the run. They run afoul of some old friend of uh, Cooper's from the war, Meads, excuse me, the Treat Williams <clears throat> character. Uh, Robert Duvall, they get rid of him or they overpower him. Robert Duvall and Treat Williams end up meeting at this airplane graveyard in the desert, which I don't know how that's going to get anybody anywhere. All the planes are dead. I guess there was a hot air balloon, but I missed they that ne- part. They never did the hot air balloon. I was waiting for that. I thought that was going to be the ending, was them crossing the border in a hot air balloon. But instead, they used that driving swervy down the road as a metaphor for we're fucking in the car again. Oh, no, that was the that worst That was the part. conclusion. That, no, that was the scene where you and um, I, my heart went out to you because I knew it was your trigger, but they were eating in the car and making out. And I know how much you hate watching people eat on screen. And they were making out while eating, and they were. It was like part of the joke. I was like, "This is so gross." Will this movie please just end? And they have a chase scene in the airplane graveyard where Robert Duvall, I think, gets the money in a car, and Treat Williams gets on a little biplane and starts ramming the roof of the car. And eventually, this tangle of wreckage overturns, and then they both get out, and they decide to split the money. And they they they've made it up. Yeah. They're, they've made up with each other, and they're mm-hmm. fine now. Everything is fine. And that is the movie. So it seems like between the production, right, and the documentary last week, 
The D.B. Cooper story is about everybody turning it into what they want it to be because we know nothing about who D.B. Cooper was or, or what happened is. or how it led yeah. up to the crime or what happened after the crime. We only know about the actual hijacking, which is a very limited time period, one afternoon. Do you remember this story as a seven-year-old? Do you remember your parents talking about D.B. Cooper ever? Like- well, it was the first time anybody would have considered, like, the thing that I remember about it was you can jump out of a jet airplane. Like, yeah. that was really, that was the biggest mm-hmm. takeaway I had to the story contemporaneously. Right, yeah. It was just unimaginable to me that you could jump out of a jet airplane. Mm-hmm. I would have thought you would have been sucked into the engines, but I guess he was behind the engines. He was behind the engines, yeah. so he's going out of the back of the plane. He might have banged into the plane or something, but that seems unlikely, too, because I think you would just drop like a, you know, a sack of wet cement, <laughs> to paraphrase Les Nessman. On WKPR, KRP is Cincinnati. That's correct, yeah. from their spectacular Thanksgiving edition, which ironically is when the D.B. Cooper hijacking oh took place. Oh, my God, it all comes full, full circle. Full circle. Yeah, we yeah. should have, clearly, if we were going to watch something that was totally not related to yeah. D.B. Cooper, we might as well have watched the Thanksgiving episode of WKRP yeah. in Cincinnati, because... It would have had as much to do with this story as this. It was just, I felt bad for everybody involved mm-hmm. in it. It just was, it was ugly. It mm-hmm. was stupid. There was no production design at all. At a desert. Not, the production design was desert. And filth. Yeah. And everybody's costume you was really, terrible. I do not like for hate. everybody to be dirty. You I, hate dirty. You can't watch Westerns because you say everybody is filthy. They're filthy. And there's yeah. a cloud of dust. And every time they do it, I just, I can't stand that. Like, if there's a prospect of them getting cleaned up, up, like romancing the stone. There are periods when they are dirty, but they eventually get cleaned up, and that's right. okay with me. But like when there's there's just gonna be filth the entire time, I just can't. I just can't. Well, you know, what's great is to read a romance novel that's that's set with this kind of vibe. Our friends Christina Lauren, who were on the dinner party show, they wrote one that was about it was basically a take on romancing the stone in the desert. And you knew when they finally crossed the river and had to wade through the river that they were finally going to have sex because they were washed off Because they clean. were clean and, and didn't smell like that anymore. I texted them and said, they went through a river, they're going to finally have sex. And they were like, ah. But there's none of that in this movie, just that no. horrible food scene. Yeah, and yeah. the sex they have is on the front seat of a, of an old beat-up old pickup truck while they're driving down the highway at yeah. 60 miles an hour. And the... They show you the, the, the truck swerving, and that's how you know they're having sex. And so then mm. later, as the big finish for the movie, when they're finally getting away from the bad guy with the money and going to Mexico, the truck begins to weave on the road so yeah. that you know they're fucking. And it's like, okay. and that's the end of the movie. It's that's like, the the this movie. is the big finish? Jesus. Yeah. At least the hot air balloon would have been physically attractive, but it's still in the back of the truck. I said there, there was some other comment I read online about this movie that the final version was about the end of the hippie era. And I was like, wow, that is giving this movie way more credit than it deserves. Yeah, this, this movie deserves no credit for anything at all except <sighs> the least use of design professionals. Like, it was just hideous. Yeah. It was literally nothing. I mean, beautiful people and wonderful actors and just hideous. I couldn't believe. I really had a, I thought a Robert Duvall movie couldn't be bad. You know what? I had such respect for him as an actor. I was like, well, surely Robert Duvall has never done a bad movie. He will bring something to this character right. that isn't just completely suck, but he didn't have a chance. There mm-hmm. was nothing he could have done yeah. to make anything right with this because Everything was unmotivated. It literally was like casting Robert Duvall in 
Smokey and the Bandit 5. You know right. what I mean? It just was that. That's all this movie is. It has nothing to do with D.B. Cooper. Nobody is in pursuit of D.B. Cooper. They're, Everybody, apparently the FBI and the police and everybody else just dropped out of the search. And the only one looking for D.B. Cooper was, in fact, this Robert Duvall character who was trying to save his career because he was such a huge pain in the ass to his employer who said he either finds him or he fires him. And he kept not finding him. Yeah. Or they kept getting away from him. You know, that way that Smokey always gets away from Jackie Gleason. I've never seen those movies. I have in the movie theater and they're fine like if you go expecting Eugene O'Neill you're going to be disappointed <laughs> but it's you know like they're road yeah. chase comedy movies like they're they're sort of funny and sort of silly mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't enjoy them as much today as I did at the time sure special effects weren't what they are now so driving doing funny things with cars was kind of special effects mm-hmm. in the movies then <laughs> you know like it was that's kind of as close as we got sometimes. Uh, like <laughs> we're gonna turn this car around and then around it again. Right, real we're gonna fast. turn it over. We're gonna Ooh, do a Hollywood. donut. <laughs> cut a donut, or you know, somebody's gonna ride on the hood or oh something like that. God. That's about as much as special effects. So at the time, it was sort of fun, you know, yeah. sort of mad, 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 mad yeah. world. That crazy movie, those Cannonball Run ones, right. road races. Would you call National Lampoon's Vacation one of those movies or a spinoff well, of it that was trend? Certainly a road movie. Yeah. I mean, they were certainly on the way and, you know, the adventure happened as as they went along. So to that extent, yeah, sure. That was probably funnier, more right. about the comedy and less about the, the chase mm-hmm. than, you know, like having him fall asleep and drive into the motel. This is kind of the only trick shot they did yeah. with the car. Um, but, uh, but you know, yeah, I guess sort of. Mm-hmm. They were still comedy road movies. It, right. It's a way of having the scenery change around you, like planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, that's that's actually a pretty funny movie with John Candy and mm-hmm. and Stephen um, Steve Martin. Steve Thank Martin, you. the booth is chiming in in our ear. Thank yeah. you, Steve Martin. Martin. Yeah, that was, you know, that's buddy movies on the road. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. Even, to some extent, Catherine O'Hara's um, mm-hmm. adventure in... Uh, Home Alone yes, is, absolutely. gets a sort of road comedy, uh, buddy movie sort of treatment. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of. 
because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So what would you have done? (laughs) (laughs) How would I fix this turd? How would you fix this movie? Well, I would try... But wait, let's be clear about what the question is. Are you saying... You're being brought in to fix, do what Roger Spottiswood was brought in to do, where they've shot it, you've got your cast, what are you going to do? Or are you starting from scratch from with the D.B. Cooper story? Well, I think the answer to those things is the same thing. Uh-huh. Apparently, if this was, like, I don't know what they were dealing with right. going into it. The the Vietnam veteran thing, okay, mm-hmm. I can sort of see that as a, as a kind of premise. Like, it would probably tended more in the direction of Rambo while not being Rambo, then it would have tended in this direction. I would certainly have begun with any factual uh, connection to the original story. Right. Because this had absolutely none. I mean, one of my favorite parts, right at the opening, I was like, it's a beautiful day to jump out of a plane. It's a Mm -hmm. gorgeous, sunny afternoon, and he's sailing into this wonderful, beautiful afternoon on Thanksgiving Eve in the rain and dark Mm -hmm. in whatchamacallit. None of that's happening. It's all this beautiful, sunny day that he's jumping out of a plane. And, like, I saw that and went, "Uh Mm uh-oh. Because, like, that's not what happened. Right. Nothing about this is what happened. So I would... I would let the story be my guide. Mm-hmm. I would try and imagine how the guy came to this decision and then how it went and how he got out of it mm-hmm. and who was going along. I would probably have had, if I was going to have it be a pursuit of some sort, I would have had his accomplice waiting at an appointed place on the ground for him to get to so that he could then, mm-hmm. so that they could go on the run from whoever it was who was pursuing them, mm-hmm. right? I'm trying to cleave to some of the sense of of what since it is the pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Right. And I would have had a more serious edge to it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I would have gone with a more sort of um, uh, Thelma and Louise yes. kind of pursuit where they keep, maybe accidentally getting away from just getting past eluding mm-hmm. the pursuit that's taking place and the person pursuing them's attitude about who he's chasing mm-hmm. evolving as the chase progresses. Mm-hmm. The motivations for doing the jump, what what do you think you would have done there? The motivations? Like his motivation, D.B. Cooper's motivations for stealing the money and doing the jump, Why? what, what, what would be your fictional explanation well i guess my explanation would probably come from who the money came from okay because that's who he's ultimately giving the finger to which is the airline which is the airline so so maybe he's you know been in the military and could fly was a paratrooper but also had and he tried to get employment with the um the airline mm-hmm. that was working, or he'd worked for Lockheed and gotten laid off, and so he wanted to stick it to the airline industry or in some way to have the fuck you to the people who he'd seen as screwing him over. Right. Like, if you're dealing with a Vietnam veteran, the the most 
I'm not going to say the easiest, but certainly the most credible storyline is having shown up for your country and done your duty and then being treated to absolutely no support or very right. limited support when you got home. The got spit on at the airport, that's not really the truth, mm-hmm. but it was not a, pic, a picture where veterans came home from the war um, to feel the warmth and appreciation of yeah. a grateful nation. They did not. Right. I don't think they were um, regaled in that sort of hideous sort of way that frequently gets depicted, but I don't think they got the kind of, you know, welcome home parade. Mm-hmm. Um, that they had wanted for for one thing we gave up so we didn't right. really win the war so Americans don't like that mm-hmm. to begin with so there's not much celebration in that and then two we just did a bad job of taking of living up to our responsibility to our veterans I think we still are I'm I'm amazed that yes that the people who serve in our military continue to given the complete abrogation of our responsibility to veterans in this country I just think we do a terrible job mm-hmm. I think. It is just shocking to me mm-hmm. that that we consistently do such a shit job of taking. So you can see there's a whole cauldron of resentment. So he tries, he comes back, he trains, he's going to work for Lockheed or something, and then he gets laid off or whatever right before what you call it, and his wife leaves him or whatever happens, whatever series of circumstances puts him in a place of anger towards the people who he's sticking it to, and then he does that. He has the skill. He knows how to jump out of the plane. That's, you know, he uses all of the skills that he's got mm-hmm. to get the things that nobody will give him. Mm-hmm. Like, to right. me, that that storyline would really be fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a much more interesting way to pursue more or less the same kind of story. Mm-hmm. But where he's using those skills that, he actually gained that right. even though people see him as an unskilled worker or not qualified, mm-hmm. um, he has all of the skills that he needs to um, prosecute the, um, right. the the ripoff and escape from the people who have not done right by him, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not in a negative way. He doesn't hurt anybody else. You know, he just gets away with the money. You know, there was a real story that's, Closer to what you're describing, where a disgruntled airline employee boarded a plane in San Diego, uh, which was an old airline that's not around anymore. I think Pacific Air or Pacific Southern Air, PSA or something. And he went up to the cockpit with a gun and he crashed the plane. As a result of the scuffle, everyone died. It crashed in kind of in central California, close to where I'll sometimes go up to vacation. Yeah. How is that similar to what I'm telling Well, he was a disgruntled employee oh, yeah. who had a vendetta against the airline. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, since he specifically says he doesn't have a vendetta against the airline, I might have made it Boeing or the airline industry or something broader. But I have a grudge is what he said. I don't have a grudge against the airline. But I do have a grudge. And let me tell you something. This may seem small. It pissed me off about this movie based on the documentary we watched last week. Tina, the flight attendant who sat next to him, the actual D.B. Cooper, whoever Mm -hmm. that was, prayed with him and for him and faced down some of this. had more contact with him than anyone else on that plane. The portrayal of her in this movie is some hysterical lunatic who's hiding in the bathroom when the plane lands, and they've changed her name, probably not to get sued. That was another sign, like the midday jump, where I was like, okay, this movie's going to have no connection to this actual story. Just no connection to the story at all. It just really didn't have... So it had no heart. Yeah. It had no direction. It was just 
how it was the fastest route from jumping out of the plane with the ransom money to Smokey and the Bandit. That's yeah. that's really all this movie was. And Spottis would, I don't know what he went on to do necessarily, but he revealed himself to be a cliche derivative hack, at least in this case. Uh, he may have gone on to be a genius. Watch, I'm looking at my brother. He directed Gandhi and... Uh, yeah, like uh, no. he may well have resurrected himself, but this was the easiest possible route to what seemed to be a money-making um, franchise or no. the derivative money-making franchise he, afterwards. He uh, directed the James Wan movie Tomorrow Never Dies, a Schwarzenegger movie called The Sixth Day. Oh. He directed a TV movie about the Matthew Shepard story, so we like that. Um, a TV movie about Hiroshima. He directed in the band played on. Yeah. So I'm not going to yeah. say, like, he may have gone on, but this was really low-hanging fruit. This was the easiest, most cliche thing he could possibly have done and it was, with this story. And I don't know what he was presented with. Right. This was a patch job. Like, a, that's what the, you yeah. know, and so it's hard to... And I really don't blame him, but this was really hacky. The Ron, Shel Ron Shelton, the writer, went on to do Bull Durham, which I've never seen, which but is, is a beloved really film. a beloved and well-done, yeah. great script, and yeah. really, really a credit to him. So I don't think it's really their fault. I think it's the fault of what they were handed to begin with, yeah. and I don't know what got greenlit to begin with, and I don't know what they were trying to resurrect. And I don't know that I would have cast this movie in quite this way. Like, I don't either. I yeah. love those actors, but I don't know that I would have cast either of them in these particular parts and in these particular ways. I might have cast them as embittered veteran and um, experienced law enforcement. I would not have brought the insurance angle into it at all. No, I just think that's, that's, so that's... Well, that abrogates him of responsibility to have any sort of legal, you know, officially... Um, sanctioned due process right. kind of pursuit of um, capturing and finding evidence for and, and yes. bringing in. Like, I, there was none of that was necessary. This was, He was an insurance investigator, and all he needed to get was that $200,000. As he even says, I don't need you to come with me. I just need you to give me the money. Yeah. I would have gone, and this is me thinking this up on the spot as we're talking about this. I would have gone, I would have scratched all of this. I would have, whatever, and... If I had to stick with it, I would have had Treat Williams's character be an imposter. That he's not, in fact, the man who made the jump, but he is pretending to be, and he is taking advantage of the furor around this story to try to either convince people to go along with a criminal enterprise on the promise that he's got $200,000 out in the woods, and he could technically have been capable, and that he runs afoul of the real D.B. Cooper, because his his impostering, if that's a word, starts to fuck up his plans. Like, if I was starting over, I would have it be about off-the-grid people in rural Washington who are alienated from their government, alienated from the society, and have it be more about what the D.B. Cooper story meant to them when it got on the news and really tap into that idea that the documentary talked about, that he was this man who fought the system, and that in having someone pretend to be him for his own reasons, sort of related to that motivation, you can draw a contrast between who you really think D.B. Cooper was and who the grudge was really against. And you get into the sort of public reaction to the story. That's an intriguing concept to me. You know, I, I would have to fill in the answers to those questions. Like, I don't know, okay, what, why would I, how would I think the real D.B. Cooper would be different from someone who was just had a grudge and wanted a lot of money? Yeah, you're you doing, um, what was it, what's it called, Music Man? Music Man, yeah, something like that. Yeah, he shows yeah. up in town and he just slowly, but yeah. kind of, 
he doesn't tell them, but he leads people to believe that he's yeah. D.B. Cooper. It's right in the area that he jumped. And right. Seems to have, he's really flush with cash and he seems right. to have really um, whatever. And he's really there just to. To fleece together, this town. To fleece the town. Yeah. And the real D.B. Cooper could actually be the hero who discovers that he's going to take this town take advantage of this town using his story and tries to put a stop to it. There we go. We got our project. Let's go. That could be more interesting yeah. too. Like, but you couldn't build that out of this footage. Like if you'd no, handed me this footage. you would really, you would almost, have, you would completely have to start over. And like I say, I would have scrapped everything too. I would not have used any frame of film from that particular movie. Mm -hmm. the, the the hijack is just an abomination. I just yeah. was, I was all, all but offended by it. It was just so... Completely, my reaction was, well, this doesn't have anything to do with D.B. Cooper. Like, Well, the, also, the coming costume. off the reenactment in the documentary, which was so effective and disturbing, the way they did it, and just so... Yeah. Because it really drives home, oh, my God, could this guy really have done this? This was a terrifying proposition to do a jump like yeah. this at night out of the... In the rain. In, in the rain. November. In, the, in Washington. In Washington State, right? Jesus Christ. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Hence the, um, the bitter... Um, Rustic saying, hey, he's dead. And do you remember how that documentary ends with the bitter Rustic says, the, the, the director off camera says, to him, why are you so convinced D.B. Cooper is dead? And the bitter Rustic says, you walk go, out go walk a few paces off trail there. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he goes off and he begins to do the walk and his feet are sinking and he's struggling. And he must have fallen down yeah. out of frame because he said, <laughs> I, I, we didn't even plan that. <laughs> but you're not, they're not shooting him, they're shooting yeah. his reaction at the time so you don't get a shot of him falling down. But yeah, and then he goes off into the woods and he kind of doesn't come back. So, Okay, so this is the final installment in our True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. So maybe it's time to look back over the festival a little bit and reflect on some of the high points and the low points. Definitely a low point. This movie, one of the lower points. Oh my I god! Would say. Just this and the the um, hillside strangler. These yeah. were the two lowest. And there were some the, low points all during this. The, we knew going into the hillside strangler. I was like, it's an NBC made-for-TV movie from 1988. Yeah. So, like, and I like Dick Crenna, but really the real McCoys. Like, I, yeah. we're not talking about amazing storied actor with a stunning career of yeah. successes. And yeah, it was like, mm, okay, sure. So um, what were what were some of your highlights? What did you enjoy the most about our True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival, Eric Shaw Quinn? God, I, you know, honestly, going off on stuff for being bad is really <laughs> sometimes awfully enjoyable. It's kind of liberating, if you will, to just really lace into something. I certainly probably enjoyed really, really leaning into um, attacking the Christian jerks in and mm -hmm. around the Robin Hill Woods yes. or Robin the, Wood Hills or whatever it's called. Devil's Knot was the, the Devil's movie. Knot. Well, not Devil's Knot. It was really more the, the Devil's Knot. I was actually not a particular fan of the movie, but the... Um, the documentary, the the West Memphis uh, Three, right? Calling out the religious hypocrisy in that was kind of a high point. It was very much a part of that mm -hmm. documentary, so we didn't have to to graft it on. I, I don't know that they did. They they told the wrong story in the movie, so I don't mm -hmm. know that they accomplished it as much there. But that was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, talking about bully and talking about the story we saw versus the story that was being captured, and the fact that the screenwriter actually quit because he didn't want to include elements of mm -hmm. them being gay. Part of part of the idea of true crime movie time is about debunking fictional accounts of true crime. So 
while we've certainly seen movies that didn't do that, the Zodiac, right. oh my God, you right. know, like he did take a point of view, but he didn't change the facts of the story mm-hmm. in order to do that. And that was a very well done movie. And, and one of the few that I, we watched that held up, I was the most surprised by um, The Untouchables. I had loved that mm-hmm. movie when I saw it and I really did not care for it mm-hmm. um, watching it now. So I think that like there have been relatively few mm-hmm. movies that we've done for True Crime Movie Time. Like The Changeling is a great movie, and it's also a great candidate for Bombs, our other news series where we talk about movies that didn't succeed. Well, were... another good candidate for Bombs, which was a movie we actually did enjoy, was The Frozen Ground, which was one of these ignored Absolutely. movies, which I actually thought was And they did good. a great job yeah. of, like, it, it was one of the first True Crime Movie yeah. Times we've ever done. And it really did. They picked up, there was some little bobbles in the way in which the story unfolded, but they really did a very um, accurate job of mm-hmm. depicting and unfolding um, that particular crime or series of crimes yeah. um, in that movie. It was it was a much more interesting story. I think that kind of movie is what's available to be made of the Green River murder. Yes. The Green River, yeah, the Green River murders. Yeah. Um, that I've got Riverman stuck in my head. I was like, did I say that right? No, it's not Riverman. That's not a thing. There is no such thing as a Riverman, except maybe in a children's story. Um, (laughs) Not a children's story. This was not a children's story. Children should not be exposed to this story, maybe ever, maybe even as adults, because it's pretty horrific. But, But that would be an interesting take on this story, and on many of them, is actually looking at not only the crime, but also the victim's, and the investigation, which is always more interesting to me, the Zodiac focused on the investigation, mm-hmm. right? Changeling really focused on the failed investigation yeah. of that. She kept asking them to look into something, and they kept refusing to do it because right. she was a woman, and they were so much smarter than her. I just can't imagine trying to convince. It's an Angelina Jolie movie. If you haven't listened to the podcast, you should. It was not part seen... of the festival, but it's a true crime TV club right. we did a few episodes ago. And it, yeah. uh, it's a, it's it's about a really horrific serial killer crime that took place here that you don't even realize it's going to be about that until you get there, and then it's mm-hmm. so shocking and breathtaking. It was really it was it was a it's a really great film. So if you haven't seen it, I I can't recommend it highly enough. But those kinds of movies where you're focusing on what's actually yes, happening absolutely. seem to be way more interesting to me. I don't know that we landed on a lot of them. Other than Zodiac, I'm not sure that we landed on... That would be the only one... Is there one that I'm forgetting from no. from this the film you're festival? Not forgetting I anything. think really that's the only film festival success that we had mm-hmm. in terms of the movie being good. But, like I say, some of them were fun to just sort of rip into and mm-hmm. go after because they were so... Wretched, and I don't know, some of them we kind of had it coming. The the TV movie about, the 80s TV movie about the Hillside Strangler, we sort of got what we were asking but, for. And, and I know I have to apologize to our party people because we did put the, the feelers out for recommendations for, for crime stories, specifically for the Pacific Northwest. And everything we found movie-wise was a TV movie that we didn't want to go in. Like Diane Downs, that's an incredible story. The story of Diane Downs, horrible story. But the mother who killed her own kids um, and tried to make up a story of an intruder who did it, that, I mean, they talk about on the My Favorite Murder 
podcast, that was one of the hosts. That was the first true crime story that sort of scarred her for life. You and know so what I mean? maybe we'll do that yeah. if there's a documentary. We can do yes, that. Yes, we can just be... as a regular TV. <laughs> I have a prediction that the true crime movie time is going on ice for a while because we have watched a lot of bad movies over this. Yeah. It's going to be uh, a bit run. before I come back to this yeah. particular genre. It's been a fun thing to do over yes. the over the summer, and I, I'm not completely like. I didn't dislike Bully. I felt like Bully could have gone better. Yes. In terms of the movie, it did a pretty good job of showing what was happening. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a whitewash, but not terrible. Yeah. And it was pretty much, you know, everybody got hung with the crime that they committed. I think they could have done a better job of depicting what was actually going on in the story, but nobody really has so far with that story. So yeah. it would have been a stretch for them to do that. But that was sort of interesting. And then the, the, the uh, the West Memphis Three, the the Arkansas mm-hmm. version. So Southern Sands was probably our best. That was um, your favorite. The best quarter mm-hmm. or whatever, however we divide up the festival. Um, the this uh, was the best um, edition. Yes, absolutely. Of this particular um, take on True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival, but yeah, it was it was not our most. But that's sort of the point, like. Most of the documentaries, I think, did a pretty good job. Yes, the documentaries did a good job. And I think we were also dealing with the fact that dramatization, scripted true crime adaptations have moved into the realm of multi-episode television. And when we went looking for quality two-hour movies, the the well kind of ran dry about 10 to 15 years ago. They stopped really making them. Yeah. And so, I mean, there was recently, I think, a whole, uh, Boston Strangler movie with Kira Knightley that I haven't seen. There was recently um, two different limited series about a story we've actually already done, which is Candy, uh, the axe murder out of Texas that was initially blamed on yeah. being on Friday the 13th. That's really... Two different series on that. Which I am not tempted to watch either of them because I've seen the story and there's not enough there for yeah. a limited series or even a two-hour movie. It's just not a very interesting story. Even yeah. the, the, true crime, the True Crime TV Club version was pretty limited in its yeah. appeal. It's kind of shocking, but... I, it, it totally it filled the half hour yeah that we were talking about it or the 45 minutes we were talking about it but not much more yeah so there's but but the move has been to take all that stuff into television you know and and the, uh, and the the point that we made with I think with the, the the summer film festival is that movies have not done a very good job of carrying the story of the actual crime into the movie. Well, I also think what we saw on a couple occasions, and we talk about this sometimes, but we saw filmmakers twisting the facts of the case to suit an agenda that was very much of the time. Like Badlands took the absolutely hideously sadistic murders of Charles Fugate, Carol Fugate, and Charles Starkweather and turned them into misunderstood, disaffected hippies on the road because that's when that movie was made, whereas those murders happened in the 50s, right? I think we saw a similar thing with the pursuit of D.B. Cooper, right? It's like post-sexual revolution, let's have fun on the road. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not really what the story was necessarily about. We were talking about layoffs in Seattle and Vietnam vets. about the story of this. You know, so I, I, I wonder what people are going to see of this age down the road if we're looking back and making movies about candy or TV series about candy or whatever. You know, I, I don't know. It should be even interesting. The, even the, for the TV series version of... Uh, I've never, I've never watched as much as I love the thing about Pam. I've never watched no, that either. that TV series because 
they kind of covered it. Yeah. And if it was a movie, I would watch it. But a multi-part series, I think they're making a mistake by that because there's not enough story to support a multi-part series in many of those cases. Yeah, well, they're swinging, the pendulum's swinging backwards on that. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. But I think there's I think there's a real I think there's I think there is a possibility for those. I don't know that a studio executive will be smart enough to see it, but they they would seem to be pretty easy to sell and yeah. not the most expensive things in the world to make. And the story is actually written for you if you just tell the story of the crime. Lori Vallow is certainly a oh, movie in the making. Yeah. Not but a miniseries. I wouldn't watch a no. miniseries about her. I couldn't stand it. No, I, I they, they you're. I agree with you. They thread it out too long a lot of the time. Um, okay, so we don't know much about the episodes to come of TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Aside from the fact that they're going to have a lot less true crime movie time in the interim, because <laughs> for a little while we're going to take while. a little break. We're going to try and get back to you. Uh, True Crime TV Club, but you never know. Maybe somebody will come out with a movie that we really think is going to be. We're not setting aside true business. crime. In general. And I will tell you, Bombs, hmm, I'm mm. really intrigued with that idea. We're but see, Bombs is like a whole nother podcast. Like, Bombs is like, we, we want to interview people involved with the Bombs. Like, I think we could really do, we got a lot of plans here at TDPS. We'll just see. Yeah. We'll just see. But we will be back next week. We just don't know how and why. <laughs> and it'll be a surprise. So, surprise, we'll be back next week. Until then, forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.